I began to start to think about what poverty actually is and that it is not just about wealth. Poverty is about a lack of dignity. It is about a lack of choice, about a lack of opportunity. It's a lack of visibility. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 16 years, Debbie has been talking with creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Jacqueline Novogratz talks about her long career fighting poverty around the world. Now I feel like I have failed so many times. I just feel it's another step on the road to success. Here's Debbie, first with a couple of messages, then her interview with Jacqueline Novogratz. I'm a native New Yorker, but since the beginning of the pandemic, I've been living in Los Angeles. I miss my hometown, but I love having more space, more sun, and a big garden. And almost nothing makes me happier than tending to the tomatoes and the foxglove and wildflowers while listening to hours of music. Sonos Move is the premium portable smart speaker, and it accompanies me wherever I go, indoors, outdoors, and even in my car. With an 11-hour battery, I can spend the entire day pulling weeds, planting seeds, and streaming tunes free and easy from Sonos Radio through the app. The design is world-class, and the sound is breathtaking. Sonos only works with experts in acoustics and engineering, and then collaborates with Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an unprecedented, state-of-the-art listening experience. If you want to know more about the best and most beautiful sound system in the entire world, please go to Sonos.com to learn more. And finally, a little personal ask from me. I love making Design Matters, and I'm always trying to make it better. One way to do that is to hear a little bit about you. If you have a few minutes, I'd be so grateful if you took a short survey about how you feel about the show at surveynerds.com slash designmatters. That's surveynerds.com slash designmatters. Thank you so much. Jacqueline Novogratz has been changing the world for more than 30 years. She is the founder and CEO of Acumen, a nonprofit that has been harnessing the energies of entrepreneurs to bring about social justice in poor countries. She's also an author, and her latest book is Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Practices to Build a Better World. It is a book full of urgent hope and clear-eyed optimism a tonic for our times. Jacqueline Novogratz, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks so much for having me, Debbie. I'm excited to be here. Oh, I'm so thrilled. Jacqueline, is it true that when you were a little girl, you wanted to be a nun? <laughs> momentarily, Debbie, momentarily. <laughs> I, um, I think it was probably the dream of every you know, six-year-old in Catholic school, at least in the 1960s. They were really the, the women role models that we had, and I was drawn to the goodness of my, my particular first grade teacher, uh, Sister Mary Theophane. You are the oldest of seven children raised in an immigrant Catholic family, and your dad was in the military, and by the time you were 11 years old, he had done three tours in Vietnam. Was it stressful for your family when he was gone? Yeah, it was stressful for all of us not knowing if he would come back. 
and we missed him. And my mother was, you know, she was a force. And so she kept us incredibly busy. We kept doing business as usual, but yes, um, it was a real loss without him around. I read that you moved about 19 times before you were 10 years old, but your mother had a unique talent of creating a sense of home, which allowed you and your siblings to feel safe and rooted no matter where you lived within a week of moving someplace new. How did she do that? You know, she is extraordinary. And literally within 24 hours of wherever we were, suddenly things were ordered. She never stopped moving. Uh, We were where we were. And it's funny, Debbie, because now since I travel all the time, within an hour of being even in a hotel room, if I know that I'm going to be there for a while, I'll find flowers, I will get organized and take that forward that I am where I am. And I think it's a real gift that she gave all of us. You said that she was a myth maker, an incredible myth maker. In what way? She was a storyteller that was in love with everyone she met. And in the way many great storytellers are, those stories would get really big. And I think that like the best of myth makers, she helped her children believe we were bigger than we probably were. And in telling stories that made us feel we could be bigger, it allowed us to step into um, being bigger. It sounds like that is really good parenting. She was an extraordinary parent. And it wasn't even just the myths, like Novogratz's do things this way, they don't do things that way. But there was a toughness there. I remember her at times with all these very wise adages. Right now, I love you, but I am not liking you. Oh, my grandmother said that. (laughs) And uh, that would put you in your place. Um, And once I complained to her about having big legs and she said, without missing a beat, she said, Jacqueline, God gave you pretty eyes. No one gets everything. And I was like, Mm. okay. Um, I guess (laughs) I'll move through that adolescent anxiety. And so um, she was fierce, is fierce. As you moved from home to home, I understand that you also learned how to move into any new place very quickly and make friends. Was that something that you picked up from your mom or was that something that gregariousness and outgoing nature, something you just cultivated as you grew up? I think army kids either get completely discombobulated by all the moving and become people who never want to move or they go the opposite way. I probably was more introverted than I, in some ways, was allowed to be. But again, with a mother who just had this can-do attitude, she set the example and the expectation that she was not there to take care of us, go out, find your friends, make your life. And so I'm not even sure, Debbie, um, was it my natural gregariousness or was it survival? Your family settled in Highland Falls, which is next to West Point, and you attended Catholic school and a poster in your class with Sister Mary Theophane, the aforementioned Sister Theophane, was one of your first big influences. Can you tell us about the poster? Yeah, it was literally just beautiful hands holding an empty bowl, a rice bowl. And my father was in Vietnam that year. It was 1968. And it captured 
what I would now call my moral imagination because it was representative to me, even at that tiny age of kids in that part of the world where my dad was who were hungry. And I would wonder what my own responsibility was, which was clearly the purpose of the poster. You said that between her influence and your father's work in Vietnam, you became mesmerized with children worldwide. In what way did you start to think about their place versus yours? Yeah, from the from a very young age. And it was helped by my father, who also loved children. And at one point, he spent a lot of time at an orphanage in Vietnam and would talk to me about the kids that he fell in love with and actually wanted to adopt. And so I, the world didn't make sense to me that there were these children on the other side of the world who just by virtue of where they were born had so few opportunities when I had so many. You studied international relations and economics at the University of Virginia, but I understand that when you first started school, you actually wanted to be an English major and even fancied yourself a war journalist. But your dad was really worried that you'd never get a job and you'd end up starving to death. (laughs) The decision to studying international relations and economics, was that a difficult one for you, given your love of the humanities? The economics part was. I always wanted to know the world, and so the foreign affairs was much easier for me. Economics was not something I really had thought about. I loved storytelling. I loved novels. I, I As you said, I wanted to be a journalist. And um, so, yeah, that was harder. It's Amazing to me now, Debbie, I get to work and know so many young immigrants all over the world who are having the same conversations with their parents. And I think it's part of the fear that many newcomers hold around wanting their children to be okay. And while I understand it now, it so corresponds with success being defined in terms of money and power because it comes from a place of insecurity. And so I did it. And I took so many English courses, I probably could have gotten another major in English, but I didn't major in it. You had an extraordinary work ethic from the time you were very young at 10. You babysat and sold Christmas ornaments door to door. When you were 12, you shoveled snow in the winter and mowed grass in the summer. At 14, you spent the summer working the midnight shift behind the ice cream counter at Howard Johnson's. You paid your way through college working as a bartender or a waitress in the summers. And you had three part-time jobs during the year and during spring breaks. Jacqueline, where did this work ethic come from? First of all, I sound like one of those old people that say, you don't know how hard it was. (laughs) I walked barefoot to school. I walked barefoot in the snow. (laughs) Um, I think it came from a whole big family ethos um, that was really based on this idea of hard work equals success and a sense of duty and showing up. And the reality that there were seven kids on a military salary. And so if I was going to do things other kids did, I had to find a way to earn the money to do it. And I didn't really think about it. I just worked and it became a part of who I am. 
After you graduated, you wanted to take a year off before working and do something crazy. So I have two questions for you. What did you think you wanted to do professionally at that point? And how do you define crazy? Hmm. I was always somewhat philosophical about the way the world should be and that I wanted to be part of changing it. That was so clear to me, but I didn't really know what my career would be. I would have images of myself always globally always in a place of adventure. But the crazy for me, again, it was that yearning of being the kid who worked all the time, had these big aspirations and ambitions and could see what other kids were able to do. I thought I would take a year ski and travel and in a way have the big spring break that I never got to have during university. But that didn't really work as an idea for me. (laughs) Well, your parents didn't want you to take any time off. Rather than discourage you, they very cleverly just asked you to go on a few interviews for the experience. And one of those interviews was at Chase Manhattan Bank. When the interviewer asked you why you wanted to be a banker, you told him you didn't and that you were just there to assuage your parents. I kind of love that story, Jacqueline, especially since you got the job. Um, (laughs) That's sort of, it's very ballsy. Um, I'm wondering if you can expand and and share more of the details of this story. Well, it was the one question I was not prepared to answer. Um, (laughs) You know, and I'm not a liar. And I never have been. And so when he said, you know, tell me, Miss Novogratz, why do you want to be a banker? It just came right out of my mouth that I I didn't want to be a banker. My parents were making me do this. And and then he said, with this real smirk too, he said, you know, that is just too bad because if you got this job, you would be in 40 countries in the next three years, which of course was all I really wanted to do was get myself 40 countries. I'd been in one plane at that point in my life and I'd never been outside of the United States. And so I was like, uh, do you think that we could start this interview over? And again, I don't know where that came from. And he said, sure. And I left the room and knocked on the door. <laughs> I extended my hand. I reintroduced myself. And he said, tell me, Ms. Novogratz, why do you want to be a banker? And I said, ever since I was six years old, all I ever want to be is a banker. And um, we laughed. And interview continued. And I felt sure there was no possible way this guy was going to hire me. And so I was a bartender. I worked till 3 in the morning. I rode my bicycle home at three in the morning. And so the only way I could do it is to take my one suit and my one nice shirt and smash it into a ball into my backpack. And then when I got home, pre-cell phones, I saw a little note that said, Chase wants you back at 7.30. And I thought, oh my goodness, how am I going to wash, dry, and iron this little suit, which I spent the whole rest of the night trying to do so I could show up in the same outfit at 7.30. And I got the job. What gave you the idea to ask for the do-over and then leave the room and then come back in? I think there's something so poetic about that story. <laughs> and, and as a standalone anecdote, I think really defines who you are in, in such a profound way. I, I think that by then, I'd already fallen down, gotten up enough times that I got very good at just pivoting in the moment. Like, uh-oh, that one didn't work. Could I just try that again? And, um, you know, just thought I'd throw the Hail Mary pass. I had no chance anyway. And so I was going to go for it. 
And it was a real confidence builder that when it looks like the chips are down, find another way in. And so um, I think that's become a theme of my life, Debbie. I have done very well in the few Hail Marys that I've thrown. And so I feel that everyone should do that every now and then because every now and then you score the touchdown by throwing that ball in that crazy way. And going for it. Yeah. That phone call that you know it's crazy, they're never going to take your call, and then they do. So you better be ready for when they do. Yes. Uh, Because that is what I have also learned. But if you're not, ask for a (laughs) do-over. And if you're not, ask for a do-over. I actually think that piece of it, Debbie, is so important because I have also really made big mistakes. And to go back to the person and say, I just really messed that up. And could we talk again? That has really served me well, too. It has with me. I think the more willing you are to admit when you've screwed up and ask for that second chance, that's the only way you're going to get a second chance. The only way you're going to get going to just, yeah, just hand you a second chance. And we so often think that when we're vulnerable, we are unlovable. And ironically, it is when we are vulnerable that we are most lovable. Yes. Yes. I, I just, I only wish it didn't take me into my 50s to realize that. Oh, me too. I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> you started at Chase Manhattan Bank in 1983 and were trained in finance, cash flow, how companies work. And in the time that you worked there, you did indeed travel to 40 countries. But the minute you landed in Rio, you felt you'd arrived in a magical place that somehow already lived inside you. I've had that experience in New Orleans and in Berlin. What do you think it was about Rio that inspired that feeling? In some ways, I think that Brazil was the first truly developing country I've spent real time in. And so, you know, I had assumptions that it would be a poor country. And suddenly, I literally, you know, minutes after landing, the smells, the sounds, the color, the the warmth of the individuals with whom I engaged, the music, the connections to, you know, to Africa. Suddenly, I could see this part of the world being connected. And this was a time of Milton Nascimento and Gal Costa, the great jazz musicians and things that were better than in New York City. And I just fell in love. And I remember uh, telling my parents when I got back to New York that someone had made a mistake and I was truly Brazilian by heritage, um, that I wasn't the Austrian American that um, my parents told me that I was. It just was inside me and it changed my understanding of identity too and who we are and how our experiences shape who we become. You've said that in Rio, you never experienced seeing so much poverty alongside so much wealth. And you've written about how you thought that the children living in the street were the embodiment of seeing the poor as outsiders, as throwaway people in a world that didn't want to see them. And you've described that moment as one where you felt the strongest desire to make a difference that you had felt in your life thus far. How did that realization align with the work that you were doing at Chase? Mm. You've just made me emotional. It's funny. I don't remember where I wrote that, but I um, just recently was going through old journals. 
And I found a journal from that time. And I had forgotten about this experience of meeting this street child. He was very dirty and having the great idea that I would bring him to my hotel room and give him a bath and then get him clothing and then buy him lunch. And while we were having lunch, the manager of the very fancy hotel explained to me that uninvited guests were unwelcome at the hotel and would I please leave and get this child out. And the affront of that experience that I was a paying guest, he was my guest, he was seven years old. That was a, a crucible moment. And when I write about it in the journal, it's definitely through the, the words of a much younger woman than I am today, just raw of the sense of the vulnerability of being a child that the world would rather not see. And in fact, where the world might want to just hurt or, or make disappear. And, and for me, it was connected to the financial system that I was already part of that also did a lot of good in the world and didn't want to see children like him nor his parents. You decided to leave Chase in addition to having a different sense of where your life could go. I believe that one of the criteria influencing your decision was a conversation with your boss wherein he told you that though you were the most productive young banker on the team, you laughed too loudly, you dressed like Linda Ronstadt, were too friendly with everyone, and he was worried that executives might mistake you for one of the secretaries. (laughs) (laughs) There are no words. (laughs) Now, now I understand this was the 80s, but still, what's wrong with Linda Ronstadt? I know. And actually, I, I really thought I was a cool dresser. I mean, I didn't wear the suits that were so much the uni- uniform. I did wear big skirts and sometimes so I... So did everybody. No, not at Chase. <laughs> oh, There was okay. truly the uniform of the blue or gray suit with the little bow tie that women would wear. And yes. I just couldn't get myself to do it. Now, meanwhile, of course, this man was rather frumpy and dressed in a brown polyester suit as he was. And I'm looking at him thinking, well, if I stay, I'm going to be like you. Yeah. And, um, and I don't think I fully understood the misogynistic and class affront that was coming at me at the time. It was all such a swirl of confusion. Interestingly, I didn't go to hurt. Interestingly, I went to thinking, if I stay, I'll be like you, and it will change who I am. And are you saying that I shouldn't laugh? Are you saying I shouldn't be friendly? Are you saying I shouldn't dress with a sense of joy? Because I can't change all that. And then what was interesting is just a couple weeks later, I get this call from the number two guy at the bank, a man named Tony Teresiano, who pulled together a small group of us. And of course, that day, if ever I look like Linda Rodstadt, it was that day. And um, he's rifling through these resumes and he says, which one of you is Jacqueline Novogratz? And I'm thinking, ah, you know, I raise my hand and he's like, bartender, all you did before Chase was be a bartender. And that was a moment where I realized many of the other kids had these fancy resumes and lots of internships and things that people of privilege did. And I didn't. And I thought he was making fun of me when in fact he saw 
himself in me. And that was the beginning of a different conversation where he said, I'm going to put you on the fast track. We need women like you. But I had already made the decision to leave. And so that was another important confidence builder before I left. Were you scared leaving? Were you worried that you were giving up your shot? Or were you really sure that this was the necessary path to take? What I knew in my deepest part of myself was that I was 25 years old and that if I didn't go then, particularly given that I had just been offered this quote-unquote once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, I would never go. And that was, in a way, it made the choice easier. Of course, I listened to Joni Mitchell's Blue album the entire time I was on the flight and cried. I don't think I was scared of what I would find, but it definitely uh, frightened me to experience such a loss, and I didn't know how that loss would heal. One of the things that I learned while reading your first memoir, The Blue Sweater, Bridging the Gap Between Rich and Poor in an Interconnected World, was how though you loved being a banker, you felt that banks were missing an opportunity in not extending their services to more low-income people. And that was part of your decision in moving to Rwanda. Why Rwanda? I did not choose Rwanda. Life can look neat looking backward, but I actually wanted to go to Brazil, but I was given an opportunity in the Cote d'Ivoire, which was not on my game plan. And I realized at that moment that I was either going to explore how to extend banking services to low-income people, or I was going to go to Brazil, but I couldn't have both. And so I went to the Cote d'Ivoire with this sense, Debbie, of um, that I would change the world. And what I realized quite quickly is that most people don't want saving, and particularly not from a 25-year-old former banker who didn't really understand West Africa, Cote d'Ivoire, the language or the culture. And so I, I failed uh, in a really big way. Um, couldn't, couldn't gain any traction in what I was doing and, um, and very quickly learned a different level of humility for which I am grateful. And then I ended up in Kenya and I failed again from my very American excitement about fixing a broken system within an organization when the leadership of that system didn't want it fixed. And it was the beginning of understanding that we often design systems to work exactly as they do. Despite their success or failure. Despite their success or failure. And those who benefit from the broken system definitely don't want it to change. So that was a second big painful lesson right up front. And then a woman walked into the office in Kenya and said, we've just gotten the right to open a bank account in my country, Rwanda. And I frankly couldn't have found Rwanda on a map at the time, but it was the first time African women had invited me to their country to work with them to do anything, frankly. And I just said yes. And when I got there, I knew I wasn't leaving until we had started a bank. You helped build Rwanda's first microfinance institution and co-created a company. I'm going to try. I, I was practicing to say this. I watched the TED Talk a few times to try to get it right. I'm not sure I'm going to do it, but I'm going to make an attempt. You named it Duterimbere. Close. Pretty okay. great. Duterimbere. 
Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, tell us what that means. It has a wonderful backstory. And then why microfinance? So dutarendre means to go forward with enthusiasm, which we most clearly did. And um, why microfinance? Because the money lenders were really the only way that low-income people, and particularly women, got any access to credit. And the money lender is the guy that shows up at the market and just helps you take little bits of money and charges you very high levels of interest, about 10% per day. Interestingly, we have them in the United States. We just call them payday lenders. And what microfinance did was to recognize that low-income women have no collateral. They have nothing to put up for the loans that they will take. Their needs are very small. Some of our loans started at $20, $30. But rather than 10% per day, we charged 12% per year. And we used each other. Women would essentially hold each other in trust and promise that, you know, if you and I were together, you would take out the loan. And when you paid it back, I would take the loan. And that by co-collateralizing using our character, you could build a bank. And, and sure enough, that's what we did. And when you look at the microfinance movement, which is really stands on the shoulders of Muhammad um, Yunus of the Grameen Bank and Sir Fazal Abid of Bangladesh and Brock and a few others around the world, it's a multi-billion dollar industry now that has reached hundreds of millions of individuals. And so it was such a powerful idea, but it was very new to a country where women couldn't open a bank account and had an average income of $112 a year. You discovered that the poorest women on the planet had a 99% repayment rate. That's astonishing. Particularly when you think about the fact that at that point, and it hasn't changed all that dramatically, the wealthy in many of the African banks that I later researched had about a 60% repayment rate. And so we had no problem lending to the wealthy. But when it came to poor women, we were uninterested despite the fact that women pay. Why do you think that is? No, not, not the fact that there's this resistance or reluctance to help finance poor people, but why do you think that women are and poor women are more likely to repay their loans? I think they have everything to gain. Um, and everything to lose. There's also a sense of community that, and solidarity that happens very, very quickly. And so there's a tradition too in, certainly in Africa called merry-go-rounds or tontine, where a group of five of us friends, we would each put in a little bit of money every week, say a dollar, and one of us would take the pot. And then the next week, another one of us would take the pot. So, so there were already informal mechanisms of women lending and saving. But the bigger issue was this sense of responsibility and um, I think solidarity with one another, not necessarily with the institution. And that's an important distinction. Rwanda experienced one of the worst genocides in history in 1994, where nearly one million people were killed in 100 days. While you were there, you were poisoned, attacked by wild dogs, robbed several times, you were even shot at. And you've said that these experiences made you question any outsider's role in development. 
How did you come to see the possibilities for your involvement as an outsider? Well, that all didn't happen just in Rwanda, um, but it all did happen across all the countries in which I worked. You know, Martin Luther King wrote that injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. And I've thought a lot about what it means to be an insider and what it means to be an outsider. And I think what's important is to know the gifts you bring and the responsibilities you have. And as an outsider, maybe the, the adage is to, to present yourself as a guest always, to start by listening, to provide an external perspective um, from that place of deep listening. And if you do that well and you show up even after really hard things happen, over time, people start to treat you as a local. And that can be the most powerful way of being that outsider-insider because in some ways you can be more trusted, particularly in very low trust environments where people have to pay the consequences of what it means to be in a low trust environment. And you can become the trusted outsider who has earned trust in a more hard earned way. You have described yourself as a people pleaser. And I'm wondering how that played into your relationships with people that you had to hold accountable. That's such a great question. I think I had to learn when to please and when to not please. And just as in when I think about moral leadership and what I really spend a lot of time thinking about now, I had to practice not always pleasing. And it's funny, Debbie, because I think that all of us have a bull and a dove inside ourselves. I certainly do. And so I, I didn't have any trouble not pleasing, you know, the big bad wolf, if you will. You know, when men would threaten what we were doing and say demeaning things about the women with whom I was working, I was in their face. I had no problem not pleasing. It was more to your point where I would have a sense of over-empathy for people who I saw as particularly vulnerable. And quite frankly, I think I let them down sometimes. How so? By not holding them as accountable as I should have because I, I didn't want them to feel at all demeaned or hurt by me. I wanted them not to lose confidence. But ironically, what I did is allow them to believe that I had low expectations to which they could live down to. And it was only when I started to understand that for the people who were closest to me, that I had to accompany them in different ways, that, that never victimized, never idealized, but instead recognized that we're the same as humans and that my job was to help them build their muscles so that they could solve the problems that were in front of them and that I was not doing my job if I was solving it for them in a pleasing kind of way that would make us all feel good but not build a damn thing or if I ever dismissed them and not gave them the chance to build those muscles. How do you cultivate moral leadership in communities or institutions where there is a hierarchy of leadership, where 
there's a reporting structure, for example, or you have to be accountable to someone else? Well, the reality of of most places still in the world has that hierarchy and institution. And uh, I think the first is to cultivate in ourselves and in each other this idea that title does not connote leadership, that authority comes by earning the trust and the followership of others. And then anybody has the chance to lead in loud and in quiet ways. Some of the most effective moral leaders and change makers that I've had the privilege of interacting with, and at this point in my life, I've interacted and worked with thousands, come from communities that the world has told over and over are worthless, comes from communities that are expected to stand up when anyone from another caste or class walks in the room. And yet I see in them a dignity that will not bend to anybody else's mistreatment. And I watch them build resistance and power in themselves and in others. And those are the kinds of role models that we need to identify and lift more and more and realize that we all have so much more power than we think we do. I'm glad that you brought up the word dignity, um, because that was the next thing I was going to ask you about. That does seem to be the centerpiece of so much of your leadership. Why is that so important to you? You know, we talked about Wall Street, and I saw how markets exclude people. And that kind of exclusion takes away people's dignity. It doesn't give them a chance to really have access to what they need. On the other hand, what I saw in Rwanda in development was that the top-down charity approach too often creates a sense of dependence. When the Rwandan genocide happened and I saw people I had worked with for years uh, do atrocious things to one another, I began to start to think about what poverty actually is and that it is not just about wealth. Poverty is about a lack of dignity. It is about a lack of choice, about a lack of opportunity. It's a lack of visibility. And that when the chips are down, what we crave as human beings is to be seen, is to be counted. And therefore, building dignity, measuring dignity, insisting on dignity became so much more important to me, Debbie, than just seeing whether a person made $3 or $3.50 a day. It matters, but only as a means toward giving people the tools to live their dignity. In 1989, you decided to return to the United States and you attended Stanford Business School. Stanford was your only choice, was the only graduate school you applied to. Why did you want to go there and what were you hoping to learn? Well, again, I was in Kigali before the internet, before even great word processors. And so uh, doing an application was a really hard thing at that time. I I was ambivalent, quite frankly, about business school, but I was often called Emshichana Kidogo, which in Swahili means little girl. That even though I had helped build this bank, I also built a bakery, people still saw me as a girl. In Africa uh, at the time, degrees mattered, and I was wondering what it would take to be taken more seriously in those ways. And I think finally, while I was so focused on micro-entrepreneurship, 
I began to see that not all human beings are entrepreneurs and that it was actually unfair to expect every single person to be responsible for creating a company that would then employ them and other people. But that there was huge opportunity if we could actually build enterprises that employed people. And I wanted to learn how to do that too. And so I would say it was those three. But I was ambivalent about business school because I didn't think entrepreneurs really went to business school. And I saw myself as an entrepreneur. And I didn't know if I would have the patience even to go through two years. But Stanford had a public management program. And it was clear to me that that would be a place where I could learn to design companies that actually included the poor and connect to public policy in a way that might uh, serve the world better. You've written how you believe that the developing world needs management skills and people who know how to start and build companies, not just people with good intentions. And you began to think that capitalism's future rested on how much creativity and room for inclusion it could tolerate. I'm wondering if you still believe that all these years later. I believe that a thousand times more. I worry sometimes, Debbie, that we are stuck in a polarized conversation or non-conversation. We have those that would throw capitalism out entirely and scream, you know, we need socialism. And there are those that are still holding capitalism at the rank of religion. And the truth is that I have worked in socialist societies and capitalist societies. These are words. We need to get beneath the words. And maybe a more appropriate word that I would use today is markets. That as human beings, we exchange. Uh, Sometimes we exchange for money. Sometimes we exchange for other goods and services. But there's power in those exchanges because it allows us a greater sense of possibility and individual choice. And yet we are smart enough to design systems that start by including the poor and vulnerable and also insist on their long-term financial sustainability so that they last and they aren't just ephemeral projects that a few wealthy people think are a good idea until they don't. And so that's where I feel much more urgently that we are at risk of having the wrong conversation just at the moment where we have the tools. If we would have the courage to look at capital simply as a means and not get stuck in one kind of capital or another kind of capital, but rather design systems from a place that use grant capital, patient capital, investment capital, and hold ourselves accountable to whether we're solving the problem or not. That's the question. In your brand new book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Practices to Build a Better World, you state that experiencing firsthand the power of markets from the perspectives of low-income women has reinforced your belief in using the tools of capitalism to enable individual freedom. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more um, in what way you would envision that or can envision that. Yeah. And again, you know, remembering where I, I have worked, um, seeing the best and the worst, if just a quick, quickly in public health in India, when you look at maternal hospitals, when I would go to the public hospitals, the government hospitals, they would often be filthy. You had to pay bribes all along the way because the people that worked at the hospital had no other real income source. 
by the way, pay more for a boy than for a girl. And I took a group in once to see all these you know, naked women who had just given birth, blood everywhere, lining one after another on these metal tables and their mother-in-laws holding these undersized tiny babies on the floor. I thought there has to be a better way. If, if this is what pu the public looks like, we need to find other models. And so we've actually created a, a company where government owns half the company and Acumen owns half the company. And it's bright pink and there's privacy and mothers-in-laws can be with their daughters. There's a way to use market forces even if you are not charging people at all to use the service because you're finding other ways of creating revenue sources, but you're building discipline and accountability. Same with education. If you go to Pakistan, 40% of the schools are called ghost schools. Teachers don't show up. Often there is no building. There are no supplies. That is not an education system. And it's no wonder that 40% of parents send their children to terrible quality but private schools because at least somebody will show up for them. And so the question that I keep asking myself is, how do we take the best of market incentives without being controlled by them and partner with government in much more creative ways? And frankly, partner with civil society. And what's exciting to me at this moment of history is there's a whole new generation that is not bogged down by this straight-jacketed ideology, but rather is looking at the different stakeholders that we have to take into account and build, I think, beautiful new models that are both economic and social, but put dignity and our shared humanity at the center. In 2001, after nearly 20 years of apprenticing, expanding your understanding of the world through jobs in banking, development, and foundations, including the Rockefeller Foundation, you created the Acumen Fund, which you thought you would spend three years doing all you could to build a blueprint for change and then decide whether or not it was an idea worth trying beyond that. 19 years later, here we are. Mm. It is a company that has helped millions and millions of people all over the world, billions likely. What made you decide to start Acumen in the first place? What I had seen in terms of the how markets exploit and overlook too often and how aid creates dependency and that there was no institutional system that I could see that actually brought the best of both. And so Acumen was an attempt to move beyond what was and build something that could be by raising philanthropy investing it as patient capital, 10 to 15 year investments in entrepreneurs that were trying to solve problems that the, the world had not solved. Electricity, healthcare, water, education. Mosquitoes. It's interesting that you say that. Mosquitoes, malaria, and um, or at least bed nets. And that was the theory, that if we invested this patient capital and we accompanied the entrepreneur with talent, with access to our social capital, our networks, other corporations that we could connect them to, grant money, maybe they would solve big problems. And as you said, our 130 million of philanthropy has raised 850 million. So we've moved about a billion dollars into markets that have reached 300 million low-income people. And um, it has been incredible to see things go from zero to change. 
I want to talk to you a little bit about your journey in making that happen. You started Acumen Fund with institutional funding from the Rockefeller Foundation, but you also felt that it was critical to build a community of individual investors from the start. And you sought to enlist 20 founding partners to contribute $100,000 each, despite the fact that you had no track record and, and a vision that not everybody fully understood. And you found that it was much harder than you imagined. How did you ultimately do it? Because you did. You ended up having 20 founding partners. You know, now I tell young entrepreneurs that, and I understand it now, but I didn't then, that people bet on the entrepreneur. People bet on the grit and the determination of the entrepreneur. And so I knocked on 100 doors or maybe 200 doors to get those 20. I would say I got 10 no's for every one yes. That's about right, though. That's what people have to do. That's what you have to do. Yeah. And it's funny that you say that because at our 10th anniversary, our board chair said, I remember meeting Jacqueline and she was telling me this thing and it was so exciting. And I made a commitment for $100,000. And then I got home and I told my husband that I just made this commitment for $100,000. And he said, well, what'd she do? And he said, I don't know. (laughs) I think that was the moment I thought, this is what we do as human beings. We bet on people. And while I couldn't fully articulate exactly how it worked, I could clearly articulate what did not work and that I was trying something to disrupt that system. Is it true that one investment banker told you that your idea of combining business and philanthropy would not only not work, that it was misguided? Uh, Not just one. Um, I would say over the course of the next seven or eight years, dozens and dozens talked to me about how fuzzy-headed, misguided, and dangerous this idea was, and most important, that it would never work. And it's funny now, Debbie, one of our companies has brought electricity to 100 million low-income people, and some of those naysayers are now co-investors. And I just think that's how it works. Yeah. You got to be the crazy one that people say mean things about, misguided, you know, don't understand business, all the things that people say when they're afraid and do it anyway. And um, if you do it well, some of those biggest naysayers end up becoming your best allies. Those are the people that hold you accountable too. Yeah, that's right? true. Because yeah. they're saying, no, Jacqueline, let me tell you. And they say it with such certainty. And I'm not a certainty person, right? I'm a seeker. And so it would always really shock me. Their naysaying would go around and around in my head. And I think, well, they're right. If I can't find metrics that are equally as rigorous for social impact as financial impact, then how am I going to prove? And so in a way, they, they end up being allies if you don't let them crush you. Yes. The earliest challenges your new organization faced was finding the entrepreneurs and the ideas in which to invest. What were some of your first initiatives as a young company? Some were big failures. We had an intra, we had a, um, a digital hearing aid that I thought was totally going to disrupt the market because it was $30 and it tested as well as the $3,000 uh, model. Uh, complete failure because... Vanity. Vanity. Yeah. Vanity. We had a very high tech way of testing disease, which now probably would cost like a dime. But at the time, it was very expensive to try and get off the ground. And um, I learned 
that if you don't understand the technology, you have no business investing in it. Even though I, I knew that the narrative was right, wrong technology. And then we got really lucky and we met a man named Dr. Venkataswamy who had this gorgeous idea, you know, thinking about you as someone who loves design. He had designed a system aimed at eradicating unnecessary blindness in Madurai, India, by which you could get access to some of the world's best eye care, intraocular lens um, transplants, and pay what you could afford. If you were poor, it was free. If you could afford it, you paid market price. Two-thirds of the patients got it for free, and yet it thrived. And he broke every rule of capitalism. He developed a intraocular lens himself because the price was $140 at the time. And he thought, there's no way I can create a product for people who make a dollar a day if it costs $140. And he figured out a way to make it cost about 10, uh, his engineers did. And a corporation came in and said, we'll buy it for you from 60. We'll make you, you wealthy, whole, forever. And um, wasn't good enough. And today they're the second largest manufacturer in the world. Um, they've served about 5 million people. Uh, his COO was on my board. Sadly, Dr. Venkataswamy is no longer with us, but Aravind is my spiritual home to remind me of just what is possible if you use these ideas without being controlled by them. Jacqueline, initially you thought, as I mentioned, you would spend three years doing all you could to build this blueprint for change. When was the moment when you knew the whole concept behind Acumen would actually work? I think it had to do, you mentioned mosquitoes and malaria bed nets. We had invested in a, a new way of manufacturing insecticide impregnated bed net to protect people from malaria. And it was really important to us that it was of by and for Africans. So we found this incredible entrepreneur named Anusha in Tanzania. They had never manufactured these kinds of polyethylene-based nets. And so literally there was nothing there when we made our investment. And the first time I visited, they had a machine and we were so excited. We were going to have this great dream. And I had done a lot of that stuff before, the, the dream phase. And then a few months later, Debbie, I went back and now there, were, there was a factory of all of these women sitting at these bed net machines and the nets were coming off. And I was going into villages nearby and I was seeing the nets. And that was a moment where I thought, oh my goodness, we're doing this. Ultimately, that company produced about 30 million nets a year with 10,000 women. And it's interesting that we're talking about him today because this is patient capital and long-term relationship. And Anuj sadly died a couple of years ago. He would have been 60 this month. And his family has asked me to pay tribute to this partnership and the, the gift that he has given by focusing on solving one of his country's and continent's biggest problems. He created thousands of jobs for women and brought manufacturing into his nation in a way that made and should make all of us really proud. At the end of the day, they've probably helped protect half a billion people from malaria, this tiny little company. And um, we got to be part of it. Congratulations on that, Jacqueline. I mean, that is just, that's enough for one life. And 
yet it's just a fraction of the work that you do. You've mentioned a few times the term patient capital and that your investment style is focused on on that. Can you describe what that means for our listeners? What does patient capital mean? I'm learning, even though we've been doing it for 19 years, that patient capital is relational, long-term capital. For us, it is philanthropic-backed, but it can also be returns-oriented, but it has to have huge risk appetite and long-term horizons. And by long-term, I do mean 10 to 15 years. And it can't be passive investing. Patient capital, it's an ethos more than anything else. It is investing in entrepreneur, understanding that if your customer makes 2 3 $4 a day in a community that has very little infrastructure, huge levels of bureaucracy and corruption, and very little trust, low skills base, you are not going to do it in a three-year period, get your investment back at a solid return and feel good. You have to be in it for 10 to 15 years because you have to build an ecosystem that requires accompanying the entrepreneur with skills, solving problems together, and helping them raise other kinds of capital along the way. When money comes back to Acumen through the patient capital side of our, our work, it gets reinvested into other innovation for the poor. And we do have a commitment to measuring what matters from the perspective of the customers our companies serve. And so we now do have the rigor and the discipline to be able to say to investors and philanthropists that support this work, how people's lives have changed and where these goods and services may fall short as well. Your work has also created really an entirely new sector called impact investing and a new generation of tools with which to reimagine and build models of inclusive and environmentally sustainable capitalism. What exactly, or again, how would you define impact investing? Right now, impact investing is a big umbrella. And so it is investing with this idea of doing good, uh, certainly not doing harm. But Debbie, there's a big spectrum of some who would just not do harm to those who do good. Mm -hmm. My dream is that we get to a point where we do not need impact as a modifier, but that all investing is no harm investing. And we start to define the real investors by redefining what value is. For too long, we've looked at value just as financial. It is time for us to identify the value that means the most to societies, both positive and negative. The value of hiring people who may not have been included, the value that you are doing to create beauty and community, and the negative, the destruction of what you're extracting from the environment. That's got to be part of the impact investing sector. And frankly, it should be the part of the way that we do business. But it starts with starting this new sector, now watching the chaos as everybody is trying to understand how they can enter it. And my hope is that we're on a trajectory toward a completely different conversation so that there's a real systematic reimagination of how we use these tools to solve our problems. 
One thing you've written about in Moral Revolution that I truly related to is the notion of what marketing genius and friend to us both, Seth Godin, calls the dip or that moment when the thing you think you want to do has gotten so hard that you don't know if it will ever work or become enjoyable. How often have you experienced those moments and how do you overcome them? Mm. Especially with patient capital where there's got to be, you know, peaks and valleys. Peaks and valleys don't even come close to how low and how high. <laughs> I can go. only imagine, Jacqueline, I, I, the stomach that you have for risk is just astonishing and so extraordinary. Oh, goodness. Um, you know, the old one, the going gets tough, the tough get going. There is a part of me that was born for crisis. Uh, <laughs> truth, truth. It is where I just turn into steel. Like, I don't think you understand. We are not stopping. And now I feel like I have failed so many times that I just feel it's another step on the road to success. Yeah. And I do believe that committing to something bigger than yourself gives you a North Star that allows you to find more sustenance than wondering, why am I doing this in the first place? That is never in doubt for me. And that's a great strength. But um, the dips are often in this work. And it's not just the big stuff. One of our companies just lost a beautiful young person in a terrible car accident in, a, in places where talent, you know, these jobs are hard. Uh, it's, a, it's a human being, it's a family, it's a, it's a, it reverberates through the community. In this time of COVID, there have been a lot of dips, Debbie, but there have also yes. been a lot of extraordinary, just astonishing acts of human courage and innovation. And so I think I focus on the positive, the innovation, and try to remind myself that we don't get to choose what the world does to us, but we do get to choose how to respond. One thing that I learned reading Beth Comstock's book is that it is just not possible to have success without failure. So anybody that is doing their best to avoid failure is also doing their very best to avoid success. That is absolutely true. And Beth, her book is so extraordinary in the vulnerability that she brings to talk about that because when you talk about that, there's such a hunger because many of the cultures in which I operate make it really hard to talk about failure. And I completely agree with you. It's kind of rule number three. If you rule out failure, you rule out success. Right. Speaking of success, I want to talk to you about Delight because it is one of the companies that Acumen has supported from its launch, and it's brought solar light and electricity to more than 100 million people across the globe. Can you talk a little bit about how you've made that happen? They're one of your longest-term partners. Well, they made it happen. But the thing is, and this, I think, is leadership, and it's the way you also personally, Debbie, you realize that it does take a village, all of this that their success has so many mothers and fathers and friends. But um, this is a story of two guys out of business school that wanted to eradicate kerosene from the world because 1.5 billion people have no access to electricity and are dependent on it. Here's where you know we think, well, markets will solve problems or governments. You know, 1.5 billion people 130 years after Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. It's immoral. Forget about unproductive and unjust and dangerous. And so they had this light. 
was $30. They had no idea how to sell it, price it, distribute it, finance it, and nobody thought it would work. And so it was truly patient capital and it's been an incredible journey. I remember Sam saying to me, well, Jacqueline, how should we price this? And I'd been to business school, he'd been to business school. And in business school, you're taught price it at the highest price you can price it. But our goal was get it to as many people as you could get it to. And so uh, finally, Sam and Ned came upon the aha moment that people pay 40 cents a day for kerosene. Could you find a way to make it 40 cents a day? And the answer was no at the beginning because people couldn't find financing at the rate of 40 cents a day. And if they made $2 a day, they didn't have 40 cents extra that they could actually save throughout the month for the solar. But when mobile banking came onto the scene in 2011, for the first time in history, if you can just imagine like a shoebox size solar panel on your roof that gives you four lights and a cell phone charger and a radio that you could pay through your phone to get this whole thing set up and literally go from darkness to being able to click a switch and have light and music and eventually television. And uh, that's another thing that has changed the world. There's nowhere I go anymore where I don't see a D-light. And I've seen the power of patient capital, impatient people, a huge amount of social capital, corporates, designers, IDEO.org was fantastic in really finding ways to make beautiful products, but also more and more affordable. And um, a deep, deep commitment that Sam and Ned had to listening to people the world had never even asked questions of and take them very seriously as customers. You've written about how privilege can deafen us to those who feel less worthy or valuable. How can those of us that are more privileged in the world hear better? Mm, Such a great question. I think it's to follow the thread of curiosity and to push aside our cynicism because I think it's the cynicism also deadens us. It's so hard not to be cynical these days, too. It's so hard. It's so hard not to be cynical. And then we get afraid. And so then when we do interact, particularly with people whose ideas are so different from our own and can be sometimes repulsive to our own, we're exhausted. We'd rather just not hear. And yet we're in crisis. We have to find ways to listen to each other. Many of the people who our companies serve come from very conservative communities. And we don't agree on everything, but we do agree on what they need. We can find ways to serve it. And the more I show up and understand who they are, the more we could have really hard conversations. I think that in this moment of our history, Debbie, we need to do a better job teaching our children a new set of skills that we really value as and call hard skills, not just soft skills. Listening, deep listening is one of them. And that listening has to start not just with our ears, but with all parts of ourselves, including learning to listen to ourselves and learning how to navigate the different layers that exist in us so that we can see through what we are filtering, what we are hearing. Jacqueline, I have one last question for you. When you turned 44, 
you received an email from a man who was your boyfriend when you were 16. He had seen your photo in a magazine and reached out to tell you that you were doing exactly what, at age 16, you said you'd be doing. So my question is this. What advice would you give to others that might want to recommit to doing the things that they dreamed about when they were 16? Mm. Thank you for that question. And I do not know where you come up with all of this information. You're incredible. Um, <laughs> I think that dreams live inside of us. And this is a moment of global pandemic, Black Lives Matter. It's a moment of breaking open. It is a moment of awakening. And therefore, it's a moment whose imperative is renewal. And that renewal starts with finding that child inside of ourselves and remembering that in those dreams often lie the truths of who we most want and can be. And it's those individuals that dare to live with the childlike curiosity that follow a thread without having any idea where it goes next, but having faith that if you take a step and do the work, the work will teach you where next to go. And so in this moment where no one has the answers, we have to reimagine everything. There is a chance for all of us to be like children again, to be young again, and to, to dare to go toward a problem that we want to solve, not knowing the answer, but knowing that we won't stop until we find it. And there's no reason you won't do it better than somebody else because nobody else has done it. And Debbie, I think I'll end there. One of the best pieces of advice someone gave me when 9-11 happened, another time of great crisis. And I had a team of three and crazily made the decision that we were going to go to Pakistan and work and try to build organizations of civil society uh, so that people inside and outside the country would see what human beings were capable of doing. And then I got really cold feet and thought, I am a lunatic. What am I doing? And I went to a mentor and told him, I've never been to Pakistan. I don't have a team. I don't really know what I'm doing. And he said, let me give you some advice. He said, you're probably one of the only ones crazy enough to go. So go. But don't go and run away. Go and make a 10-year commitment. Because I'll tell you this. If you do it and you show up, at the end of those 10 years, you are going to know more about that country than most people who are not from that country. Now it's 19 years. By making that commitment, though I had no idea what I was doing, and following through and showing up, I have not only fallen in love with the community of people there, it has fundamentally changed who I am and how I see the world and taught me things I didn't ever even know I had to learn. And that's the promise. That is what that kind of risk-taking that doesn't have to start big. It can start with your neighbor and fixing something in your neighborhood. And goodness knows we have lots to fix. But it is having the faith that no one else is doing it. So go and try to do it yourself. Jacqueline Novogratz, 
thank you for truly transforming the world with your work and your goodness. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Debbie, thank you for everything you are and the way you listen and care and pay attention. For me, that's the ultimate act of respect and of love. Thank you. Thank you. Jacqueline Novogratz's two books are The Blue Sweater, Bridging the Gap Between Rich and Poor in an Interconnected World, and the recently published Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Practices to Build a Better World. You can see more about her extraordinary work at acumen.org and her recent TED Talk at TED.com. This is the 16th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember... We can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, and we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded in non-pandemic times at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.